Anytime somebody said, you can't do this, to me, that was like throwing down the gauntlet that, okay, I've got to prove to you, oh, yes, I can, because I've never given up on myself. If you don't ever believe in yourself, why in the world would you ever expect anyone to believe in you, right? You have to first and foremost, believe in yourself. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. This WarDocs episode features retired Army Brigadier General Dr. Norvell Van Coots. Dr. Coots is a dermatologist who served as the commanding general of Regional Health Command Europe and command surgeon for the U.S. Army Europe and 7th Army. He also holds the distinction of being the last commander of the historic Walter Reed Army Medical Center. He is currently the president and CEO of Holy Cross Health in Maryland. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear about the importance of dermatology and skin disease diagnosis and management in the military. You'll also learn about the importance of medical care and organizational planning for crises, such as the one demonstrated recently in Ukraine. Dr. Coots also discusses the unique challenges at Walter Reed during the time of base realignment and closure and managing combat casualties while moving to a new campus in Bethesda, Maryland. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon Dr. Kevin Neary. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Brigadier General, Dr. Norvell Van Coots, War Docs. Van, thanks for joining us today. Sure, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. So you were initially commissioned as a medical supply officer following ROTC in college. Tell us a little bit about that particular job and how you decided to pursue medical school and become a doctor in the Army. Yeah, so I've always wanted to be a doctor. I I found something that my mom had saved where I'd drawn a picture of myself in the fifth grade, and I had some kind of blue uniform on with gold stripes, and I was carrying a medical bag standing next to a gurney with a red cross on it. So I didn't quite get the uniform right, but I sort of knew what I always wanted to do. And actually, that's not exactly what happened in life. So I went to military high school. From there, I went to West Point. At the end of my plea year at West Point, I decided I was number 500 and something out of a class of 1180. And at that time, they were only letting the top 2% go to medical school. So I said, I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to leave once I'm recognized. I left and went to Howard University, enrolled in ROTC, and then actually got accepted to medical school off the waiting list in my junior year. So I dropped out of undergrad, went to med school, actually had an ROTC commission that was pending. It rolled over into an HPSP commission. And then I'm a terrible test taker. So part one of the national boards just devastated me. I got kicked out of medical school. And so I was sitting there not knowing what to do. I said, wow, let me apply to medical schools around. Let me apply to school in Mexico, whatever. And then I get a call from the Pentagon saying, hey, Lieutenant Coots, we've been looking for you. I'm like, what do you mean? They said, well, you have a commission and you're not in medical school anymore. So guess what? You are coming on active duty. So they pulled me on to active duty, Medical Service Corps, 85th Med Battalion, Fort George G. Meade, Maryland. And my first unit of assignment was the 10th Combat Support Hospital. We were converting from a cash to a mash, needed two medical supply officers. So my boss called me in and said, hey, would you like to go to the logistics course? I called my mom and said, hey, my boss wants me to go to the logistics course. What do you think? She said, stupid. He's not asking you. He's he's pretty much telling you you're going to go to the logistics course. So I said, oh, okay. So I walked back in and said, sir, I'd love to go to the logistics course. And that's how I became a medical logistician. But my goal was always to get 
back into medical school. So during that time, I studied, took the MCAT over again, applied all over again, got accepted to the University of Oklahoma, and started in my first year all over again. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. So you completed medical school, did your internship, and then you found yourself in Korea. And this is kind of the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, because you were the commander of the 150th Medical Detachment in Wagon, Korea. Of all the small places in the world, I actually followed you there as the doc replacing you. So tell us a little bit about your experience in that particular place being you're kind of in the middle of nowhere, just out of your internship. And now you're in charge of a medical unit and the medical care of that whole post, basically. Yeah, my whole career is a very circuitous path. There's nothing straight. I mean, my CV reads pretty straight and easy, but it was not that at all. So I remember when assignments were coming up, I said, you know, I could go somewhere in the States, but I've always wanted to go to Asia. So I'd like to go to Korea. So I actually called it the 18th Medical Command and said, hi, this is Captain Coots. I'm an intern. I'm finishing up. I'm coming to Korea. I said, yeah, I'd like a, I'd like a command and I'd like a command south of Seoul. They said, yeah, well, we make those decisions, Captain. Next thing I know, I'm I'm detailed to command the 150th at Camp Carroll. So when, when I show up, the chief of staff basically said, hey, that was pretty ballsy. Nobody's ever asked us and told us specifically where you want to command and that you want to command. And so we figured, oh, if you're ballsy enough to do it, we're going to give you the command. So I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I thought it was great. I had commanded um, as a medical service corps officer too. I had a medical supply detachment and ambulance platoon. So I'd already had one command and I'd already deployed once to Joint Task Force Alpha in Honduras. So for me, it was, it was a no-brainer. I said, I can either work for somebody or I can be the boss. I'd rather be the boss. Got stuck for two years because of Desert Shield, Desert Storm. When you know they stopped, lost everyone, and everyone went to the desert, they said, you can leave and go to X is the unknown, or you can stay in command. And I said, I'm not stupid. I'll stay in command for my second year. And then got picked up for a derm residency, and, and then it was out of Korea. But those two years were just fabulous. I really enjoyed myself. And do you have any medical stories of, because you're in, intern trained and now you're the doc and all kinds of crazy stuff happens. I was the most flying non-flight surgeon you ever wanted to meet because we had a helipad right there and being south of Seoul, anything that came in that myself, my doc, and eventually in the second year, we got a PA, what we couldn't handle had to fly to Seoul. So I had my own headset. I was always hopping on the back of, of the helicopter and flying with, with patients up there. I remember there was one child, one baby that came in because guys would marry women in the Ville and live out there in the Ville, get pregnant, have babies. The baby was eight days old, had been delivered out on the local economy, came in and was having labored breathing and would periodically stop breathing. I said, I have no idea what's going on. I call so I said, helicopter inbound, helicopter landed for that entire flight. I, I had the, the stethoscope in my ears to the chest of the baby. Every time I stopped hearing respirations or I could see that the chest wasn't rising, I just said, you know, I'm going to use the reticular activating system. So I just shook the baby and it would start breathing. And so I shook that baby so many times. I was careful not to shake its brain, but I shook it just enough to, to keep it breathing in flight. And I remember when we offloaded the patient and turned around, I had sweated completely through my BDUs. I was completely wet. I was so nervous because I had no idea. It turns out that baby had an atypical pertussis and they flew the child through the Philippines back to San Francisco. So after that, you completed your residency in dermatology at Brook Army Medical Center. 
What roles does dermatology play in deployed medicine? And why does the military have dermatologists in our ranks? You know, so when you look at disease non-battle injury, on average, about 15% is dermatologically related. In World War I, it was even more than that. It was 30 to 40%. You had trench warfare, so you had trench foot, frostbite exposure, and then the, the normal rashes and things like that. But you also had syphilis and other venereal diseases, which fell well under the purview of dermatology. In World War I, you actually had dermatology hospitals in theater. So it was so significant. So the amount of derm which can actually degrade a unit's effectiveness is incredible. All you need is a really bad itchy, scratchy rash. And you're not thinking about the mission. You're thinking about that itchy, scratchy rash. So in your career, you've given several lectures to the tip of the spear folks, 18 deltas on physical exam of diseases of the skin and any other kind of similar presentations. The lectures target an audience that provides expeditionary care. Tell us your thoughts about skin disorders, the diagnosis and management in that environment where you don't have all of the tests and studies and labs that you might be accustomed to back in the United States. One of the other lectures I gave was on sexually transmitted diseases too. So again, the same things, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, still hold true in just about any, any theater of operations, any type of operation. And for the 18 Deltas, being that they go in remote and they are the medical care, I thought it really important that they fully understand the significance of being able to make a, a, a good diagnosis or at least getting in a range of diagnoses and then having an idea of how to treat to be able to keep that um, soldier, sailor, airman, marine, whatever it is, as far forward as possible without having to evac them back for, for something that they could have easily made at least a reasonable guess and a diagnosis on. So following that, you spent two assignments primarily as a dermatologist in Würzburg, Germany, and also at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Tell us about those assignments and any memorable experiences or clinical cases. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I worked with Les LeBeau, who was the chief of dermatology at Würzburg. So that was my first assignment. I'd actually requested Fort Hood. And because they had a critical need in Germany, I went on my way to Germany. Had no desire to go, but there I was. The, the assignment actually turned out great. I was able to apply for the funds to buy a laser. They let me buy a laser because I had been laser trained in residency. So I did a lot of laser care, a lot of tattoo removal and things like that. A lot of dermatologic surgery. I wasn't trained as a dermatosurgeon, but dermatologists can excise a lot of lesions and things like that. So it was an awful lot of fun. I remember one of my patients called me a hairstylist because when I would check the scalp during a melanoma check or, or skin cancer screening, I would have a blow dryer and I would blow the hair so that it would part so I could look through it. So they started calling me a, not only a dermatologist, but a hairstylist because of that because of that blow dryer. You could have charged extra for that. Yeah, didn't think of it. So in 1999, you moved on to kind of more operational and administrative jobs, both in Germany and then at Fort Myer. What made you choose that career tra trajectory apart from being a full-time clinical dermatologist? So again, nothing in my career was necessarily chosen by me. So during that first tour in Würzburg, I came up on the, the alternate list for in-residence command and general staff college. And I knew one of the guys who'd been in Korea with me. He was down at Stuttgart or someplace like that as a, as a clinic doc. And he had actually come up on the list. But he said, you know, Van, I don't want to go. I'm, I'm going to get out of the Army. So next thing you know, I was next on the order of merit list and I got selected to go. And that's how I wound up at, at Leavenworth doing DERM. I was there actually in Command and General Staff College and just volunteered because they didn't have a dermatologist in residence. I had 
done a lot of the digital division courses because I wanted to be the digital division surgeon for the uh, fourth ID. And again, back to Fort Hood, back to really wanting to go to Texas. And I was told, uh, Major Coots, you don't make those dis- assignment choices. We do. And we're going to send you back to Germany to Fifth Corps. So I packed up after a year, went, went right back to Germany. This time it was okay, though. I said, well, I enjoyed myself the first time. This time I'm going to Heidelberg. It, it should be really great. So I showed up at Fifth Corps, and it was right at the beginning of the Kosovo campaign. So half of the uh, Corps Surgeon's office was forward in Albania, and the rest were, were back in the office planning the transition from Albania physically on the ground in, in Kosovo. We had the opportunity to actually plan for the invasion and takedown of Montenegro. A lot of people don't realize that this was going to be the largest amphibious landing since World War II. We had the Navy, we had the Air Force. I was going to drop in with the with the mobile surgeon cell and they said, you know, the only problem with with being dropped in is if if you don't wind up in the in the drop zone, you wind up in the woods and there are wolves in the woods. So be very, very careful. Needless to say, we never invaded Montenegro. And honestly, I think it was the best deception and the best case of saber rattling that anyone ever had because we were directed not to cover our maps up. And so the cleaning ladies who were like Serbs would be looking at the maps and everything. And the word got back to the Serbs that we were coming. And so they backed off. So I think that was a masterclass in strategy, being able to be a part of that. But being boots on the ground in Kosovo and actually seeing the people, seeing what was going on, being very close by to the Russians and some of the other peacekeepers that had partitioned off that area was really a very, very valuable lesson in kind of uh, diplomacy or, or, you know, kind of set me up for things later in my career. One thing I realized, though, that we did, too, at that time, there was no AFRICOM. So fifth course, so Europe was responsible for Africa. So if we had floods in Mozambique, I had to work with the French to get antivenin for the black mamba so that the troops could have black mamba antivenin. I had to make sure that the pilots had their anti-malarials. I mean, it was full spectrum service coming out of that fifth corps surgeon's office. And the other thing that we were doing was we always knew we would return forces to Iraq. So we were dropping leaflets all the time saying, hey, we're coming back. We're coming back. If you don't fight us, we won't disband your army. If you you don't fight us, we won't disband your army. And what's the first thing we did when we went back? We disbanded the army. You said you should have said we're bringing black mambas and wolves. (laughs) So following that, you served as the commander and CEO of the clinical services at West Point and Keller Army Hospital at the United States Military Academy. Tell us about that assignment. What was it like coordinating medical care for cadets, their teachers and families? And did you mentor any cadets that were interested in a career in medicine? Yeah, it was great going back. And I actually had a little bit of trepidation because when I left the academy, so many of my classmates who were ring knockers wouldn't even talk to me. You know, they call me a quitter. And and so when I got the assignment, I was actually going to command the hospital at Fort Belvoir. And the medical service corps officer was going to West Point. And then the superintendent said, no, I want a doc up here to be the surgeon. So they flipped the assignments and I went to West Point. You get the theme here? Not a single (laughs) one of my assignments was actually my choice, but wound up being a great assignment. So I went back to the academy. They welcomed me back. I did a lot of... um, work with the pre-med club. I did have a couple of cadets that I personally mentored, both of whom are physicians now. I don't know if they're still in the army because that, you know, years ago, but certainly they became military physicians, army docs. And I think the crowning achievement though was 
my DCCS had recognized that the cadets were really smart, but they were behind in anatomy and physiology because that isn't taught at West Point. They could play catch up, but they were very unprepared when they went to uniform services for that aspect. So we were able to get a special duty assignment through the Surgeon General's office and coordinated with the academy to leave my DCCS there as the instructor in anatomy and physiology. And he did that for three years before that assignment was eliminated. So any good cases that you remember from uh, your time at West Point? It was a lot of sports injuries. I'll bet. (laughs) So uh, after that, you became the, let's say, the final commander of Walter Reed Classic in 2008. And that really was a time of continuing high op tempo during OIF and OEF. Tell us a little bit about that experience and the role Walter Reed played in the care of combat casualties from the theater of war. First of all, again, I was not originally scheduled to be the commander of Walter Reed, but Congress decided that they needed someone who had extensive command experience and also was a graduate of the War College. And I had completed War College by distance education while I was at West Point at at Keller. And so the Surgeon General called me and said, hey, Van, I'm going to change your assignment. I'm going to assign you to be the commander of Walter Reed. He said, but I need you to talk to your wife because you have to understand with the political situation right now, this could be your last assignment in the army. This could end your career, but I need you there to to command. And I was like, okay, Roger, sir. It was fascinating from the political milieu, from the Washington Post had written the article and gotten a Pulitzer Prize on the expose on Walter Reed. Members of Congress were through there all the time. They had created and stood up the Warrior Transition uh, Brigade and really the whole system of warrior care. That Tiger team had gone in and about 30, 45 days had created the original part of the system that we know today. They had moved all the soldiers off post so that it was only wounded warriors in the barracks and wounded warriors and family families living in the hotel and then some of the other on-post housing. There were parents, there were mothers who would call me and say, I read the paper, I've seen the articles, I don't want my son or I don't want my daughter who's just been wounded in Iraq or Afghanistan coming to your hospital because you guys are gonna kill him. And I would say, ma'am, I said, you don't understand. I said, this is exactly where you want your son or you want your daughter to come. This is Walter Reed Army Medical Center, worldwide, the, the biggest, the best military hospital in the entire world. And we did a lot of work from 2008 to 2011 to reblue the organization, to change the culture, and really to win over our board of directors, which were all the members of Congress, as well as the American people. We had two flights of critical combat casualties a week, at least two flights, usually 10 to 12 to 15 casualties at a time, straight off the battlefield in Iraq or Afghanistan. And we had that van, basically the rolling ICU that would pick them up at Andrews Air Force Base and come with its sirens and lights around the beltway and everything. And everything worked like clockwork. People responded so quickly. Everyone was out, got those carousels in, got those patients in. It, It was just amazing to see all the while the countdown clock was ticking away because under the BRAC, we had to close that base by September of 2011. And so two theater war, all these casualties coming in and planning for a closure with closure activities going on. Okay, this is now shut down. That's shut down. Let's move here. Let's do this. It was just a sight to behold. And it's amazing the dedication of the service members and the civilians at Walter Reed to keep 
the active mission going in patient care and also the closure mission going at the same time. We had so much stuff going on. We had 100 VTC suites in that hospital. And I remember sometimes I'd pop my head in the door and there'd be a surgical team helping a surgical team in Ghana perform an operation or working with a PA who was forward in a training environment someplace around the world where that special ops PA was out there and had a camera attached to the helmet. And my team was assisting him with whatever he was doing. So just a tremendous amount, a lot of frenetic energy going on all the time at Walter Reed. So we had talked to some previous guests who said that the BRAC was more of a big deal than a lot of people realized. And when you found something that needed to be repaired, they said, hey, there's no money for that. This place is closing. Did you find that to be a problem when when you were at Walter Reed or had Congress kind of figured out, hey, maybe we should listen to them when they say we need to repair some of these things before someone gets hurt? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think when the expose came out and then everyone lost their job from the Secretary Army all the way down to the hospital commander and, and everything, they, they had a change of heart and a change in the way they thought about um, Walter Reed. So they recognized that they had gone from having 68 maintenance personnel down to 16 for, you know, 70 acres worth of campus buildings and things like that. So the, the coffers opened up and the money flowed again. So my budget at that time was about $600 million. And I remember if I was running low, sometimes I get a call in the middle of the night from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or the chief staff of the Army going, hey, doc, how you doing? Hey, sir, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Hey, would you like a little bit more money? Yes, sir. I, I would like a little bit more money. He said, okay, I'm a, I'm a MIP for $10 million to you tomorrow. It'll, it'll be in your account tomorrow. I mean, the, the coffers were open. Everything was working. I still had a project, even though we were closing, I did a $54 million renovation on my OR suites and my ICU, knowing that within a couple of years, I was going to close because the standard of care had to be maintained. They were old, they were programmed for renovation. So we did that we performed that renovation. And if I can tell one quick story, that one day I really remember like it was yesterday, I got a call to be standing tall, zero dark 30 on a Sunday morning. So it was like 5.30 in the morning. I showed up, the garrison commander was there, the WTB commander was there, the surgeon general, his command sergeant major, the commanding general, her command sergeant major, the vice chief of staff of the army, the adjutant general, the inspector general, the chief of engineers, and I think one other, and the plumber, because someone had called the White House and said that the water in one of the rooms in the hotel was tepid. Well, not that it was cold, but that it was just kind of lukewarm. So I remember everyone was crammed in this machine room with the plumber bent down. So we're all standing there looking at plumber butt as he's looking over and telling us what's going on with this valve. And I stepped back for a minute and I said, no one will ever believe that in the midst of a two theater war, I have the entire leadership of the army in here looking at a plumber telling us about an antiquated valve that's going to take about a week to remanufacture. So the decision was made to cannibalize building one because building one had a similar type of valve in its boiler room to be able to fix it that day so that wounded warrior and, and his mother could have hot water in their room. That's a great story. I can just see that primer going for, for $10 million. I think I could take care of you guys. So from 2012 to 2013, you served as the Surgeon General for the U.S. Forces, Afghanistan, and Medical Advisor to the ISAF Command. Tell us what that job entails. So I was the first 
full-time Surgeon General in that position, General Horaho, had gone over and thought that this would be a great idea to have a, a medical general in theater because of the complexities of the care on the ground and the coalition. She spent about three months on the ground. And then because they wouldn't frock me to BG, they, I had to wait to be promoted. Two other Brigadier Generals went in each for three months until I could actually deploy over. So I was the first full, doing a full year tour there. And so I had two headquarters, one at the ISAF Joint Command headquarters with Lieutenant General Terry, who was the CG of 5th Corps. 5th Corps came in and took over from I-Corps. And uh, so that was the coalition piece. And so I had to cobble together all the medical services of the different coalition countries that were there. And usually we had multinational role one through three facilities. And so the French and the U.S., and the Spaniards and the U.S. and the Bulgarians and the Germans and the Americans and the Italians and somebody else. So keeping all of those mixed country hospitals kind of connected to the mission and to a unified uh, command. Then I had the U.S. forces Afghanistan duty. So I went over to New Kabul compound which was the U.S. headquarters, and I would do that job on the weekend. And that was putting out yellow hashes, warnings, don't, don't bite down on uh, butter pecan ice cream because you're guaranteed to break your teeth, all kinds of things like that, basically preventive medicine. Uh, and, and then some command and control over some of the American medical units that did not fall directly under NATO command. So what would you say was your most memorable experience in that job? There were two. There was one where we were trying to convince the military to use the V-22 Osprey as a medevac vehicle or as a Kazavac, as the Marines like to talk about Kazavac. And I remember General Gorganis, who's a two-star Marine, I, I went, was down in, in his AO, and he said, he said, General Coots, if you try one more time to take one of my Ospreys and turn it into a medical vehicle, I'm going to take a, a ball-peen hammer and beat you over the head with it. And I said, hey, sir, this is a beautiful vehicle for, for over-the-horizon, long-range EVAC, and it's very, very fast. We had an emergency event down in one of the provinces, and they had no other way of getting a large number of casualties out. So someone dispatched an Osprey to go down and pick them up. So that was the first use of an Osprey as a Kazavac vehicle. It worked out perfectly to, to get a large number of casualties back very, very quickly. And so from that point on, people were convinced that, wow, this is something. So they started working on a carousel where you could possibly do surgery in flight and, and, and things like that. So that was, that was one. The other was an outstanding young division medical officer, and I've forgotten his name to this day, but he had done an extensive study on putting blood on board the medevacs. And it made perfect sense because by the time you pick someone off up, up off the battlefield and got them to that first level of surgical care, they would often need four, six, eight, 10, 12 units of blood by the time they were stabilized and, and moved on. So the theory was if you started blood on board the medevac before you got them to that first level of surgical care, you were already ahead of the game because the you know vascular system was still up and running, heart was still pumping without straining and everything. So he came up with an idea of a blood warmer on board. We gave O negative whole blood. And usually we could get the first unit of blood in within four minutes of picking that 
that casualty up off the battlefield. So remember that the aviation rings were 30 minute rings because of uh, Secretary Gates' decision that the, the golden hour was important to, we know that's that's not an EVAC standard. That's a, that's a cardiopulmonary resuscitation standard. That's not even a trauma standard. But the golden hour became the standard for medevac there. So the important thing was how many units of blood could you get in in a 30 minute flight ring to get a, a patient out? So usually they could have three or four units in them by the time they got um, to stabilization care. And sometimes you could overfly stabilization and go directly to definitive care as well because hemodynamically they were stable. So the, the, the idea was to carry at least four units to six units of blood on board the medevac anytime it got called out for a combat casualty. So even though you're Brigadier General doing the important Surgeon General stuff, you're still a dermatologist. Was there any kind of things that the dermatologists were seeing in Afghanistan that was unique or challenging or different from their normal practice? I don't think so. I think unlike Iraq, where we had leishmaniasis, we didn't have anything really unique in Afghanistan. It was common dermatoses are common to soldiers and things like that. What was the obstacle was there was only one theater dermatologist. So troops had to fly, had to get on a helicopter um, and fly to, to see a dermatologist, put their life at risk. At the role one in Kaya, when they found out I was a dermatologist, they said, hey, can you come see a patient? Finally, I said, I'll tell you what, guys, why don't you save up all your derm patients and book them for Friday? And every Friday, I will come over and I will do a derm clinic. How about that? And so I wound up being the dermatologist in Kabul. Yeah, I remember working with a former dermatology consultant to the Surgeon General, Dan Chisel who would always refer to dermatologists as we're the cutaneous warfare specialists. That's it. That's it. I mean, so, so Dan and I were together in Heidelberg when I was the DCCS there, he was chief of derm there and he actually had some shoulder tabs made that said combat derm. And of course we couldn't wear them, but we wear them under the flap. I I hope you kept one of those. I did. I have mine still. (laughs) We want to see a picture. (laughs) Okay. In June 2013, you served as the Assistant Surgeon General for Force Projection. Explain to us what Force Projection means and how that applies and how it's important to military medicine. Yeah, so that was an old term. We had two two Assistant Surgeon Generals at that time, one for Force Projection and one for Force Sustainment. And the year both of us were in those jobs was a transitional year. We were kind of moving away to the traditional role. But force projection, I was the waiver guy. I would I was the I was the ultimate waiver. So if you'd been denied at a couple of different levels and had a final appeal, it would come to me. I was the waiver authority to, for the age waiver. So we had a 70-year-old neurosurgeon who volunteered. I waived him in because we needed neurosurgeons and because he was probably healthier at 70 than I was at 50 something at that point in time. Most of what I did in terms of the force projection, eventually it sagged into having oversight of the White House Medical Unit and other special medical units in the National Capital Region and being tied into the disaster management for the NCR. The position also came with a role at MedCom, and that was the Deputy Commanding General for Support. So a one-star role here, technically a two-star role um, at MedCom. So from there, you went on to be the commanding general for regional health command Europe, which I'm sure was a very interesting job. Tell us a little about the challenges military medicine finds outside America. Uh, you're in Europe. No, that's a, that's a great question. So it actually was IRMC when I showed up and we transitioned it to Regional Health Command Europe and rolled up the Dental Command and Public Health Command so that all medical was under one command. Because prior to that, 
you had your regional medical command, your regional dental command, your regional public health command. So three disjointed commands, which made command and control over all the different types of units throughout Europe difficult because the troop strength had gradually been decreased, decreased, decreased. A lot of the concerns and bases had closed down. And so people were far flung and farther apart than they ever had been before. So I was responsible for healthcare from England all the way to multinational force observers in Egypt, coordination with the Israeli Defense Forces Medical Hospital in Italy and a smaller clinic at another base in Italy, the bases in the clinics in Belgium and also in Spain. And then all the bases in Germany, of course, with Landstuhl and everything. A lot of what people don't realize is that Landstuhl is the main support hospital really for all of Europe. Italy had a hospital that really been downgraded from hospital status. We still considered it sort of a hospital, but we wound up having to develop partnerships with host nation medical to really provide tertiary and quaternary care. So in Italy, having a partnership with several Italian hospitals, and that took some converting because Americans don't like European healthcare because European healthcare in many places is still old fashioned. Rooms, four, four patient rooms, sometimes with a screen as a divider, sometimes with a curtain, sometimes with nothing as a divider. Very often in a German clinic, when you would go, they would tell you to get undressed in this room and you'd walk naked back across the waiting room <laughs> to go to the exam room. And the Germans would say, ah, you are, it's just so prudent. You're, you know, okay, it's the, it's the European way. So we had to gently massage that and say, yeah, but we're Americans. How about we create an entire floor that looks like an American hospital, especially for labor and delivery, for giving birth. Most of the births outside of Landstuhl were in civilian hospitals, whatever the closest civilian hospital was. So working with those partner hospitals to create an American L&D experience. And let me tell you, when those European women, especially the Italian women, when the Italian women found out that, oh, by the way, there were single patient rooms on another floor with TVs and with all kinds of things, very American, they demanded that same level of care. So we kind of skewed European healthcare towards American just by the example that we set. But really, it was important to cobble together all these partnerships with all the different host nations to provide the an, an American standard of healthcare. In Germany, it was easy because whether you're deployed in Germany or, or in country, the standard of care is the same. So in a deployed environment, you have to have sort of home world standard of care. So we knew that in Germany, the care would be exceptional other than that whole, you know, being naked thing. And in the Pruda, in, the Pruda yeah, genau. <laughs> so yeah. In, so recently, the European theater has witnessed the significant military actions by Russia and Ukraine. How does military medicine support the rest of the military when these significant military actions occur by near peer aggressors? So we have to be prepared for modern warfare, for asymmetric warfare. I mean, I tell everyone that it's not that we're worried about being in World War III. Right now, we're in World War III. You've got the hot war going on in Ukraine. You've got cyber war, you've got economic warfare, you've got information warfare going on right now. So all of those meet the criteria for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, which is what any modern war is going to be. So we're looking at the face of a modern 
world war right now. During that time that I was in Europe as the as the rocket commander, I was also dual-hatted as the command surgeon for U.S. Army Europe and 7th Army. And so Ben Hodges was the commanding general, one of my West Point classmates, was my commanding general during that second year of, of my stationing there. He was hot on Russia. And so after Russia took the Crimea and started fighting in the Donbass, he took me and a group of officers to Ukraine, and I went with him to the hospital. And then he decided to leave me in Ukraine for several days to make the rounds and meet both the civilian and the military healthcare leaders and determine what the issues were, how we could ramp up and support their forces. And so we started a training program, which still existed up until the Russians rolled in and started their assault. But we were training on individual uh, self-aid, buddy aid, combat casualty care, medevac, Kazavac, medical logistics. And of course, the war fighters were coming in and training on small arms, artillery, armor, and things like that. When we face an, an activity like that and units start to deploy forward into Poland and into to Romania, we rely on host nation even more than before to fill in the gaps in healthcare when we deploy the healthcare providers forward. As units are flowing through, particularly Germany, we increase the capacity of our primary care clinics. So uh, we would deploy primary care docs from CONUS to Germany to help augment those clinics while those units' medical services were still uploaded and pretty much in their phase of forward movement. So their organic medical was, was fully loaded, their sets, kits, and outfits. They may have some time to assist at a clinic, but really we wanted them to be preparing their soldiers and their equipment to go as far forward as necessary. So we would expand our capabilities for our base clinics to support those troops that were moving through. And unfortunately, in order to do that, we would have to transition family member care out onto the local economy. And that was always followed by a lot of of gnashing of teeth and everything like that, because no one wants to leave the comfort of, a, of an American healthcare system and go to the unknown of a European healthcare system. Yeah, especially when you're, you're dealing with refugees that are coming back the other way and overwhelming your country as well. Well, I think one of the things that's important to think about this is we all know that anytime that there's war and there are refugee populations, that disease follows those refugee populations. So as we're watching these millions of people cross these different borders, the biggest thing we're worried about right now is COVID. You see the pictures on TV, you see nobody wearing a mask, people huddled together wherever they could take shelter in the Ukraine and then massing together either on the road or on board trains to get across the borders and then massing together at the reception stations. I think the fear is that this is going to lead to a spread in COVID. And in fact, some of the European countries are starting to see an uptick in cases right now. And usually here in the States, we're two to four weeks behind Europe. So I think we're all starting to get a bit wary of what's going on, thinking that you know, as we watch these refugee populations being here in the national capital region, I've got Dulles Airport and BWI, two major points of entry from Europe relatively quickly. And then also recognizing there are a lot of Ukrainian Americans. A lot of people are going to want to come to America and join their family members. What is it that they're going to bring with them as they transit through Warsaw and get on a plane or to Berlin and get on a plane to D.C.? or something like that. So we have to be really prepared um, to be able to pick up any early warning signs of disease that might cross our shores. So as a medical corps general officer, I'm sure you've had some 
significant leadership challenges. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe one particular example and something that you learned that has helped prepare you for your current job, which is president and CEO of Holy Cross Health in Silver Springs, Maryland? The biggest thing is always convincing the warfighters medicine is a force multiplier. Very often they think, okay, doc, you're just here to take care of this. You're here to get us ready as opposed to, yeah, but docs are moving farther forward. We're with you on the battlefield. We've been there since the revolution. We're always on the battlefield with you. We keep your forces in the fight. I can't tell you how many times I had to explain what the value of a medical general was because I would have a warfighter say, I could have a colonel medical corps that I could get along with a heck of a lot easier than a general. Well, that's because a general wasn't going to put up with any BS. And, you know, hey, general to general, this is what we need to do with the medical forces that are supporting you. I don't want you to take the medical assets and put bullets on the on the ambulances and move them forward, you know, this is uh, controlled by the Geneva Conventions. There's a law of war. There are things that are important to do. I really learned that just as the warfighter doesn't understand us, unless you have spent your career in, in warfighting units, you don't fully understand the needs of the warfighting commanders either. I think the best docs that really understand that are those docs that have grown up from being um, a battalion surgeon to a division surgeon to a corps surgeon, the operational medicine guys. Me as a dermatologist, I came to operational medicine a little late and I had to kind of learn the hard way. The reality is we're very bureaucratic in military medicine and we have to make it easy. We have to figure out ways of making it easy to understand who we are, what it is that we bring to the war fight, and make it easy for people to access our care, whether it's in CONUS, whether it's at, at our clinics, at our bases far forward, whether it's family member care. That's very important because you all know that if you take care of a soldier, sailor, airman, marine's family, they will fight more effectively knowing that their family is receiving good care. So how do we make it easy for everyone who needs to access our care and cut through the bureaucracy and, and, and not be that? I remember as a young captain in Korea, I was explaining to an 05 battalion commander what army medicine was, we did and did not do, and what the rules were for accessing care. And I remember he looked at me and he said, my God, for a young officer, you are as bureaucratic as a little old man. And that that has never left me. I was like, geez, are we that bureaucratic? And, you know, as I worked my way up through Army Medicine, I said, yeah, yeah, we're pretty bureaucratic. We got lots of rules. They say, haven't you seen my combat derm patch? So how do you make it easy? How do we listen? How do we make it easy for people? So how, how did those experiences, because warfighter, medical support, how does that translate into the civilian world that you now find yourself in fighting different wars? I, th I think everything, as I look back on my career, everything was for a reason. I mean, those years as a medical supply officer, I really learned to understand what that side of a hospital or healthcare is all about. So I can walk into the warehouse and I can talk to my warehouse guys and we can talk about the cube. We can talk about moving things forward. I can ask what bin such and such an item in is how they have it tagged. You know, is it RFID tag? Is it, I mean, I understand all of that. I also understand how logistics can choke a hospital out too. So sometimes when they'll say something to me, I'll say, Hey, BS, I was a logistics officer. I know you can get me this part for me tomorrow. Running a clinic was very important because now I understand out patient medicine, primary care medicine, evacuating patients by ground and by air. 
I understand those basic principles. So everything was additive. And then commanding Walter Reed and then commanding regionally and the relationships and the partnerships that we had to develop to provide health care between us and our host nation medical facilities. I'm doing a lot of JVs. I'm doing a lot of partnerships right now. I'm, I'm developing partnerships with the payers, I'm developing partnerships with other hospitals and health systems. Everything I learned in the military basically is translated over. Even in Maryland, where we're under a special waiver from CMS and CMMI, I have a global budget revenue cap that's set. So I know that my budget is $650 million a year or $700 million a year, just like I knew at Walter Reed that Uncle Sam gave me a $650 million budget a year. The difference is I was given it at Walter Reed. Here, I'm allowed to earn up to that amount, but I have to charge for it. I have to figure out, work my way through denials. I have to negotiate with the payers for a good rate. So a lot of things, a lot of those fine nuances, if I have a weak point or if I had a weak point as I was transitioning, it's in the finance of healthcare because that is not something we ever really had to worry about in the military. If I want to do a surgery, I did, I did the surgery. If I wanted to get that amputee six different feet and six different legs so that he could climb, swim, bicycle, everything, he got them. I didn't have to worry about who's going to pay for it. And maybe if I gave him all of that, I couldn't give somebody else everything or I couldn't do something else. And so it's a balancing act in the private sector that I really had to learn. Then I also had to learn not to stand so straight because people found that very intimidating. Those things that we learn to do, stand straight, look somebody in the eye when you talk to them, pop off, speak at a volume and very clearly enunciate so people can understand you. They were like, wow, he's really, <laughs> you talk loud or wow, you're intimidating the way you stand. So I had to learn instead of standing straight up to kind of lean on something, cross my leg and put my hand in my pocket. Okay, so what advice would you give to those medical leaders in the military right now that are uh, considering transitioning out to the civilian sector? So I would say don't self-select out. As I was transitioning, a lot of people said, yeah, I know you're a general, but you can't go straight into the C-suite and be the CEO of a health system in the private sector. You got to start somewhere lower, like, like chief medical officer or whatever, and work your way up. And, and I wasn't ready to um, accept that. I said, no, I've had too many CEO equivalent positions as the commander of this and the commander of that, that I think I can do it. And, I, and clearly I did. So I think we sell ourselves short. The second thing is we undervalue ourselves because everyone knows what a government pay scale is. We have no idea how much we're really worth in the private sector. And so we have a tendency to take the first offer that they give us because, wow, that's a lot more than I was making in the military. But the reality is we're often selling ourselves short. And then we really don't understand sometimes that it's the ask and not the task. There's a different way of getting to consensus to getting things done that's saying, hey, I need you to do this. Hey, I need you to get me that. Hey, let's call so-and-so. Hey, let's have a meeting. It's like, hey, I think I would really like to have a meeting with them. Do you think you can arrange that so we can talk about this, JV? So one of the things that we like to ask all the guests on War Docs is if your family, we know you got a couple kids, you got a couple dogs, a horse. If your family of the future let's say 50, 100 years from now, unearth this podcast, what would you want them to hear about your career in military medicine? I would like them to think of me as a plugger because I never accepted defeat and I never gave up on myself. 
when I got kicked out of medical school and was out and I would tell people I was going back to school, they would laugh and they'd say, you never get back in. You only have one shot. And I would say, no, that's not true. I want to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. At every turn, when I didn't get picked up for Durham, the first time I applied, people said, well, usually if you don't get picked up in your first time, you're not getting picked up. I was like, no, I want to be a Durham. I'm not going to give up until I become a dermatologist. And so it was that way all along. Anytime somebody said, you can't do this, to me, that was like throwing down the gauntlet that, okay, I've got to prove to you, oh, yes, I can, because I've never given up on myself. If you don't ever believe in yourself, why in the world would you ever expect anyone to believe in you, right? You have to first and foremost, believe in yourself. And I think the second is that they're like, they would say, wow, he commanded Walter Reed. He was the last commander of Walter Reed Army Medical Center. That is probably the thing that I am most proud of, of my entire career, was being able to navigate that morass of politics, journalism, being tried in the court of, the, of, of American thought and sentiment and, and, and everything else to effectively care for all those patients, transition them actually early and close that historic facility in the way that it, it deserved to be closed after 102 years of service to the nation. That is probably my crowning achievement. Yeah, I got promoted to general. That actually got me promoted to general. Well, we've been speaking with retired Army Brigadier General Dr. Van Coots on Wardock's podcast. Van, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to the nation. Thank you, Doug. It's great, and I really appreciate this. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's Wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.